Hey, and welcome to the Deconstructor Fun Podcast. So, in this episode, this is going to be a fun episode. Uh, we have Joe Sheppy. Uh, shit, I'm really bad at pronouncing the surname, but it's S C H A E. PPI. So I've known Joe actually for for better part of the year, and he's a co-founder of a company called Twelve Traits. Now, Twelve Traits uses psychologically based AI to power the future of customer centricity for top global companies, helping businesses understand audiences and create customer resonance unlike ever before. This is the official statement, but the way I see it is we have a lot of data in games. We have the in-game behavior of the data that comes from data analytics. We have community feedback. We've got customer support. We've got our own gut feelings on how to make betters, but games better. But what we're often missing is information on players' emotions, motivations, culture, personality, values, habits, these kind of stuff, these kind of what we consider often soft stuff, but are actually very impactful. 12 Traits is a company that focuses on giving you the information, the data on these very important elements that you need to not only improve your game, to, to connect better with the audience, but also maybe early on when you're, when you're starting development of the game and trying to make a game for the right target audience for the right personas. Personally, uh, we're using 12 traits uh, as we are developing our new game. So I'm, I'm very excited about the platform. I've been enjoying using it and learning a lot of new. And this sort of a discussion is something that we've had with Joe before, and we just decided to do it on a podcast to share more information how 12 traits is used. Now, before we jump in, I want to thank our sponsors. I want to thank AppsFlyer. And uh, AppsFlyer, if you don't know, AppsFlyer is an attribution platform, uh, perhaps best one out there, a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving all the tools to drive marketing success. It really allows that sort of a comprehensive measurements and analytics that help you to optimize the end-to-end player journey from acquisition to retention, from return on investment to lifetime value. And in practice, this means filtering of cohorts of installs, then retargeting those cohorts with personalized experience based on engagement and in-app events. AppsFlyer is also really good at, at offering robust fraud protection, making sure you're not paying for that bogus traffic. And it's not only you know deconstructor fund raving about AppsFlyer, it's also companies like Playrix, Tencent, Playtica, Square Enix, Huge, and all these other amazing companies that are using AppsFlyer to boost their business. So check out AppsFlyer.com and get yourself attribution data you can trust. And as always, this podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Iron Source. You know, they know you're here for the good content, so they're not going to waste your time. And I'm not going to waste your time with long pitches. And the three things you need to know and remember about Iron Source is number one, they're developing the most robust data-driven growth engine for mobile games. Their secret sauce is closing the monetization and marketing loop to help developers and publishers supercharge their growth. And number three, you should really check out their Medium blog and their podcast, both called Level Up. And you can find it on Medium as well as any podcast platform used by just searching for Iron Source Level Up. So that's it. I hope you enjoy the podcast episode as much I enjoyed recording it. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Joe from Trail Traits. Hey, Joe. How's it going? Going well. Uh, how's your How's your morning in Finland? Uh, it's It's good. It's good. You probably hear the uh, the sound of the birds, and uh, but it's not too loud. It's just aim, like a, like a background sound. It's It's a It's a beautiful nature ambiance. It's gonna It's gonna help with our brains. A little biophilia effect. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is the This is the best part about the podcasting is that you can do it from not not from anywhere but from many places. So I like to record it from my backyard. It's pretty cold. The sun is only rising, uh, but, but still you hear the bird sounds, but how about Minnesota? Uh, less cold. We had, we had some snow last week. Mm-hmm. Um, I did see the, you know, the, the steam coming from your breath. So I was like, it's a little, <laughs> now it's like, you know, spring is here. So, or yeah, or that's it's good. And it's in Minneapolis, right? Yeah. Yep. So I, during the whole COVID thing, decided that, mm. you know, well, I couldn't make it back to Berlin with the rest of the team because I yeah. was over here. Well, supposedly for GDC, which mm-hmm. didn't end up happening. Nope. Um, didn't make it back. And I, I just was like, well, if the apocalypse does happen, uh, <laughs> I don't want to be in LA. 
So <laughs> came home to Minnesota, which it's, it's a good choice. It's, I guess, America's little Scandinavia. So it is. It, it looks exactly the same. And you, you even have Vikings. We, we got it all. And supposedly yeah. <laughs> some may have, may have sailed here. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I meant the team, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have, we have the team, the Vikings, yeah. which, yeah. But we also have, there's like, there's like all these like conspiracy theories that, you know, Vikings made it here and left some stones and ruins and things like that. So. That's, that's pretty far. I really doubt it. <laughs> long, long ways. Yeah. It's, Kensington, it's called the Kensington Runestone. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it might be. I'd love to talk about Vikings, but I think our listeners are a little bit more interested about personas and about different motivations. So uh, let me tell you, let me tell you my version of 12 traits and please correct it in the way. So, so, you know, when I think about data uh, in, in games and in apps and overall, it's, it's always about, kind of four things it's first of all it's the uh, the data analytics which is the in-game behavior and all the predictions you make from it the second part is the community feedback so we always look at what the community is saying and of course that's the minority vocal but highly engaged part of the players that affect our roadmaps uh the third part is customer support so that's the uh well, that's the bugs and, and all kind of issues that, that we basically need to fix. And some of the times the features are half done and they create a lot of tickets. So we kind of fix that. And the fourth one, which is very important, is gut feeling. And people, some people hate it, but I, I kind of love it. The gut feeling means for me, uh, what, it, what it means is we all love games. That's why we make games. And, and in the beginning, the gut feeling is really important as we ba basically look at benchmarks and then we go forward. And this is how I want to feel. This is how it should feel. We replay our game. We replay certain levels. And as we go further, the game is live. We are avid players of our own game. So a lot of the things that we make is based on our gut feeling. And of course, that gut feeling is bundled with analytics, is bundled with community behavior. But it's our it's our expertise. So those are the kind of like the four sources of actionable data that we have. But since I've been interacting with 12 trades platform, I realized that we miss a lot other things, <laughs> a lot of things that, that, um, that we kind of touch upon through these, these four elements, but we didn't, but not really, we kind of like, you know, wing it and this is emotions motivations culture personality values and habits and um and you guys you measure actually all these missing elements that for us were more of like vague uh soft things and i think it's really important because the best part about making games is you know you're in minnesota i'm here and in like in helsinki far away from from the places of, of coolness, but nevertheless, we're able to make, <laughs> or actually it is cool in terms of weather, but, um, but we're able to make worldwide entertainment products. But we often fail to think about what is worldwide. And the same thing happens in the US when I, when I worked in San Francisco, we always made games for like Sally from Ohio, which is like the most mm. blended version of an American female uh, you can find. And these were the kind of like the normal personas, but we, we've, we've we fail to understand that these games are truly played around the world and from Thailand to, to Singapore, to Malaysia, to Saudi Arabia, maybe Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure. Uh, but, but, uh, but anyway, so you guys have been doing excellent work. You have high rate of success with various clients from various industries, uh, helping them to increase their retention, which is of course priority for, for anybody making, making experiences. Uh, you've been able to help them to increase their velocity to market and you've been able, able to significantly help them to increase their revenue. So this is how I see 12 trades and Joe, can you, can you tell a little bit about how 12 trades came to be? Am I off? I don't think I'm off. I've, I've used the platform for a little bit. I kind of like, it's, it's really awesome, but, but, um, how, how it came to be and where are you right now and what's, you know, what, what's, what's up with 12 trades? Yeah. Um, well, no, I, I appreciate that. And um, yeah, I think, you know, you're, you're pretty spot on and there's some additions too. And I like what you, I just want to comment on um, the gut feeling thing. Cause that's, I think that's one of those really important aspects of, of intuition and kind of the creative mind. And I think one of the things that our tool enables people to do is actually act on that even more um, than before. And it's kind of like, 
you know, how many perceptual faculties you have. You can see, you can smell, you can hear, you can touch. The more you add, like if you were blind, for example, it just, if you can see, it adds to like the amount of gut feel you can have around a situation. And I think, you know, how this came to be actually plays into that story. And to comment on that quickly though, you know, I had a friend at, um, he was at Nintendo for a while and was using our stuff and he was kind of afraid of it because he was like, this is gonna tell me what to do. And like, I'm not gonna be this wizard anymore and it's gonna be just more data. And he had this whole idea for narrative in a game. And he was told by the business that narrative doesn't work in these types of games, people just tap through them. Like we have all the data in the world to show that. And he was like, I, I just have this feeling, it's a gut feeling, it's gonna work, I know it. I've been in games for my entire life. And the, he was just fighting with the business every day and he was leading this game. Um, and came back and the data came back and people were just tapping through it. It wasn't working. And then kind of dug into some of our stuff and he found that the communication style he was using with the, the user was actually, he was writing it how he likes to write. And then he read it and he was like, this is my wife. And so he rewrote the whole narrative as if he was writing to his, his wife because he could see the, the literal communication style. And all this comes from clinical psychology too. Mm -hmm. But he, and then all of a sudden the metrics went up and he's like, dude, I had like a handgun and now I have a machine gun. And now I can take like, what you guys are able to do is support some of my intuitions in ways that I never you know, was able to possibly do before. And I think that jumps back to like why this all got started and, and why this all happened. Um, I was working, uh, I was at the University of Wisconsin. I was uh, working in a neuroperception laboratory I got there because I actually, I skipped the final to go windsurfing and my professor was like, why did you do that? Uh, and I remember just telling him, well, I thought like what would I remember when I was 40 is, you know, windsurfing on one of the best days I've ever seen in my life. I had already good grades in the class. So I was like, well, I, I'll miss the final and like take uh -huh. a seat, fine. And he came back and he was like, that's awesome. He's like, will you study like neural perception with high risk athletes? Cause I have this lab that does that. I was like, amazing. So that's when I started building clinically based psychological assessments back then to study a lot of high risk athletes, people who are trying to excel at their human potential. Mm -hmm. So how do you take somebody at a normal or a baseline and maximize their potential? And what I realized back then was two things. One, all these digital systems that we're creating, they don't really think about how we interact with them or how they interact with us as people. Uh, like there's a study from the University of Michigan that showed, you know, Facebook use over time increases depression. Uh, there's actually one good study that, you know, social media and TV use uh, is predictive of like teen anxiety and depression, but games are not. Mm -hmm. So, you know, games are these really experiential things that, you know, it's why we want to experience more in life. So you have television, consume the radio, games are consuming TV. It's just, we want more experience. And so back then I was like, well, what if we could make environments that adapted to people in healthy ways? Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like what Lord Kelvin said, if you can't measure something, you can't improve it. And so I realized back then that we were ingesting even all this behavior data. It's, you know, you have this, you have the cloud, um, clicks, taps, all, you know, what have you. And in 1960, you know, we realized that cognitive psychology and cognitive science, that emotions, thoughts, habits, all these things heavily influence behavior and predicting behavior. And it's for me coming to, you know, this world, I was at McCann doing a lot of big ad projects for like Intel and Verizon. And I was like, oh shit, we're still doing all of our data specifically based off of behavior. We're stuck in pre-1960, scientifically speaking. It's kind of like if you knew the formula for Lyft, like, why wouldn't you go and build a plane? Mm. You know, it's, there's this formula here. We know that human beings are not just our behavior. We know that we're our thoughts, we're our culture, we're our genetics, we're a combination of all this other stuff. Um, and behavior is just not enough. And so why we came about was kind of my, my mission in my career and why I went into human factors and UX and why I became a psychologist and then stopped doing it was basically to get access to the clinical tools that where, you know, in games, there's been a lot of pseudo psychology in the past, which is cool. A lot of armchair mm -hmm. psychology. I think people in games are really interested in humans. Like we, we create behavior, we create experiences. So why wouldn't be, we be, you know, and, 
You know, you hear about things like the Bartle types, which, you know, were meant for MMORPGs. But the reality is, is like, if I said, hey, are there four types of people in the world? Mm. No. Or people, <laughs> been, so are you guys like Myers-Briggs? No. Well, it's like, are there 16 types of people? No. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so for, for us, what we're trying to do here is we, we're entering the experience economy as of 2020. And you and I were talking a little bit about yeah. that just before we jumped on here. And, you know, it's this, it's this thing where like 2007 was a big deal because that was the first time human beings were in more urban environments than rural environments in terms of living. And, you know, so that's a big, that's a huge thing. And then moving out, you know, beyond, beyond that, going to, you know, now 2020, if you look at like McKinsey, Ernst & Young, uh, there's a, another report from Walker where it's very clear that people today are spending more money on experiences than, than price and, and product and goods. And so there's this big shift that just happened and the game community and the game industry is exactly in the right place, whether we knew it or not or wanted to be here. But why we're in games and why I went to Big Fish and, and headed up their UX there and went that direction was there's just not enough behavior outside of games to aggregate enough information to start to holistically understand someone. And you need multiple baselines. Um, you need to do psychological assessment. You need other people to rate people from the outside. And then you need to collect behavior so you can do things like, like ecological validity is basically like, if I predict that you're a high achiever and you're a gold medalist in the Olympics, there's a real life thing that proved that you're an achiever. Um, if, if we predicted that you were a low achiever and you were a bunch of gold medalists, like we would have definitely messed up our ecological validity with that type of measure. So what games allows for is for us to basically look at lots of different experiences and being able to get at these things that, let's just say um, we were a casual company and we just had like flick and launch games. It'd be very hard to, let's just say we're measuring how, how proud you are of being productive. That's a, that's a motivation that you have that's intrinsic. Um, we might be able to measure that really well just in that one game um, because there's not a lot of confounding factors. Uh, environments are not too different. But then you go to an MMORPG and you have that same mechanic in the game, but maybe you're doing it because in the MMORPG you get status. So now it's actually your status orientation. That's, that's, that's what's really motivating you. And so that's why we work with a lot of different companies that have a lot of different games, which allows our AI over time to, to learn. And that's what gives us a huge advantage for, you know, compared to if companies have done this in silos, like internally, it's just still, there's no game company in the world, like even an Activision or a Tencent, mm. where if you had all the neuropsychologists and all the tools and um, infringed on our patents or not, it's just like, I'm just kidding. But, um, <laughs> but if you had all that, all that stuff anyway, um, you wouldn't be able to, you, you need a, a broad sample of different types of environments for, to teach AI over time, yeah. how to you know, measure people in the ways that go well beyond behavior. Yeah. And, and I mean, what I really like about, about what you guys have been doing is, is when you, when you go through the, uh, the concrete examples, I, I'll, I'll mention a couple of things. So one was when you were helping a company and I believe they had a shooter game and in their, when, when you did a study, a cognitive study of their player behavior and, and who their players truly were beyond the analytics, you understood that one of their key traits was altruistic behavior or altruistic tendencies and your that that information kind of helped them out to change their creatives where they would show they, that they are saving somebody uh, versus just marking others and, and that and that helped to significantly uplift the um, well overall the user acquisition as well as the retention because they were getting the right type of players and, and they were able to understand their players better and the second part second example was was one of the top rpg games at one point of of free to play era and how that game basically grew quickly and they had a certain type of player base and as the time went on and as they were uh, you know they're growing significantly and getting more and more players in the actual player base changed from the, from the players who were about, um, well, the 
classic RPG players about, you know, how to make the best type of composition with the best type of items to kill the best type of dungeon bosses to actually um, players who are more interested in collecting these cool characters and, and putting them together and just liking to have somebody because it looked cool and it, and it fit the team and, and it might have not been the best possible thing, but it still fit the team. And that kind of broke the game because the team was too focused on catering to that uh, first, uh, first type of player base uh, and those first type of traits and totally missed the opportunity to, to address the second, uh, second wave and probably more waves that would have come that had different goals and different uh, ways of playing. And those players just got stuck. They couldn't progress because the game was tuned towards those completionists, those uh, super strategists. I don't know uh, what, what they're called. So I, I think those are, those are amazing concrete examples and you have a multitude of those uh, uh, going on. So do you wanna, do you wanna kinda throw some other ones? Yeah, you know, I think with with every game that and maybe if at a high level it's i think it's important to start there um with every game that we go into it's always fascinating because you get a variety of companies who say you know we know our users really well they're 23 year old males or they're like you know 45 year old women and there's just this demographic focus and then usually the ua team is really siloed from the actual product team mm -hmm. where the first time user experience and the ua are directly connected and, you know, you don't realize that if the UA is shit, you know, you're not going to have good retention. And you talk about quality of install and you're like, how am I getting, you know, good users? Well, you know, we've seen game teams where they've said, oh, we just completely changed our first time user experience. So we had one company, for example, where we went in and they're like, oh, yeah, we got this. We did all this usability research and we realized that um, our first time user experience, we have all these arrows here and we're just getting rid of all the arrows and now it's going to be contextual so like if you fail three times then it will show you but if you like can just breeze through and they launched it literally the exact same retention metrics but then the behavior started changing in the game because there was some different people that were coming into the game so obviously from the behavior they could see you know stuff was different but they didn't know why and so we come in for example measure the audience look at who they are uh, there's like four different psychological clusters or main groups in the game. So, you know, it's kind of like your live personas on steroids because um, you can see who's coming in. And what we saw was the audience, interesting enough, had a pretty much a split. We measure this one cultural attribute called uncertainty avoidance. And we know that when users score really high on uncertainty avoidance, especially in first time user, user experiences, they need that on Rails experience. They need the arrows. They need the do this, do this, mm -hmm. do this. And when users score really low on uncertainty avoidance, like as a country, for example, um, New Zealand is the lowest scoring country in the world for uncertainty avoidance. Yeah, they so like new stuff. <laughs> they, they'll jump right in. Like, and this is where I tell people too, when they're soft launching games, they're like, yeah, we soft launch in New Zealand. I'm like, you got to go to some other different countries because they're going to move past a lot of stuff that other people wouldn't because they have less avoidance mm -hmm. around uncertainty so you might have really bad usability and the kiwis are just like whatever you know or maybe you should start there if you want to impress your management folk of of uh, of good early metrics in a tier one yeah. country <laughs> yeah that's it yeah you can just go all in yeah um <laughs> so so what was interesting was with this game though is once we realized that we just said hey you guys have that fatui from before like let's do both and when people come in, because basically what we can do is send, so like we know, for example, that this audience has lower levels of uncertainty avoidance, which people who have lower levels of uncertainty avoidance, um, there's all these, there's like over, you know, 200 traits we measure. They tend to have higher levels of, of fearlessness mm -hmm. in terms of how they're motivated. So sent an ad out to them. That's basically, you know, more of a risk taking type ad. Uh, and it's based on, you know, lookalike of that psychological segment. And the cool thing about psych segments is they're really sticky over time. People don't really change how extroverted they are, for example, on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, you're in Finland, you know, have a, have a Finn wake up the next morning and, and without alcohol be like, <laughs> yeah, know, I almost measured the, uh, the, the magic drink that makes every yeah. Finn extrovert. <laughs> I can, I can make fun because my grandpa is finished. So, um, 
I guess that's, that's enough. But so when, when we send out those ads that are directed at those people and then they come in, now there's new people coming in and you see from early behavior that you can detect that we can predict based on our database, based on our AI, that they're likely to have higher levels of uncertainty avoidance. Then they get the, the fatui with the arrows. And the ones that have lower, they get the fatui that's dynamic and open. Mm -hmm. And now you just basically double the amount of people that you're, you're bringing in and are having stick from day one, mm -hmm. rather than having these hypotheses where I think this is another big part, like with that, that game. Um, and this, is, this happens with most game companies where they'll come back and say, you know what, one of the biggest benefits of working with you guys was, is we're completely aligned around who our customer is now. And what that allows for is when we do sprints, it speeds everything up because we're a game team and we have, everyone has ideas all the time. And there's like debates over what we should A-B test. And we also have all these local maximum problems where we're like red stick, blue stick, red stick, blue stick. Okay, blue stick, these shades of blue. Where with you guys, it's like, oh, they wanted the sword. They mm -hmm. didn't want the stick. So from early on, you can start there. Um, but I mean, there's countless cases like, the altruism one was a great example where the ad was more altruistic. The people came into the game. They got kind of a med kit when they started. Um, there's another campaign for another company where they found the audience was like really caring and family oriented, like top value by far was family. Second highest value was, was caring. And what's cool about this is when we like to, our, our brain wants to kind of put people into different buckets. Mm -hmm. um, we've had companies be like, yeah, here's our 23 year old male, you know, persona. And here's our like, you know, here's our 32 year old male. And these are the people that play the game or here's our 47 year old female Sherry from yeah. Ohio. Yeah, and yeah. what you realize is us humans, we're more psychologically similar than we are different or, or different than we are similar. Mm -hmm. And when you rip the demographics out of it and say like, you know, these people are, super extroverted, they're resilient, so we can difficult, you know, do difficulty tuning in this way. Um, they have a lot of grit, they're warm, they're, you know, we, we measure a thing called bounded reciprocity. So it's how likely a group is to stick together over mm -hmm. time, which um, one game, for example, just player matching, they were having a lot, they were doing um, uh, push notifications to get people back into the game. This was a game that was uh, a top uh, grossing app about like seven years ago free-to-play world yeah and it's been around forever they're getting people to come back in and uh, one of the things that they did was they did player matching where they had a group that had higher levels of anxiety and they had another group that was like some of the highest we've seen in any game and every game is a unique fingerprint like totally unique audience even if it's similar genre sometimes there are similarities within genres for sure um, but then as you get into your game um, you know we've had one game where through our recommendation engine, because we also understand what to do yeah, based yeah, on the rates. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most important parts of our product. So it's way more than like all these data companies out there that like we sell insights like bullshit. Like you're making people deduce based on a data point. That's not an insight. Like that's zero insight. That's like form your opinion based on this one data point mm -hmm. or multiple data points where we get to learn over time what, game, what actions actually affect things. And so one of the actions that was served up for a company who they make all war games, they have like 30 war games and uh, Love they it. Came back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Eastern European. So no bullshit. Classic. Like, and they're like, guys, like your, your um, program's not working. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like what's, you know, what's going on? How do we help? Um, and they came to us and said, actually they had implemented one of the recommendations into their game and it was the best performing feature they had in two years. And they had all these brainstorms and all these things going on. So I said, what do you mean it's not working? They're like, well, we implemented it in our other games. Mm. And it was, it was like, you know, version two, like, yeah. game two. Um, and we looked at just in Facebook, we said, well, let's look at overlap of the audience. And there's only 20% overlap within Facebook. Um, so it's, if you look at the, you know, these types of games where sometimes they seem similar, they can actually have pretty different audiences. And to mm -hmm. your point, with that other game, like audiences can change within a game over time. And sometimes who we think we're making the game for actually isn't the most valuable. Part and of and, the game. and that, that is a super important point because in all the companies that I work at that have portfolios, it's always about let's share knowledge of how our features work or how our AB tests are running and then do the same thing in different game inside the portfolio and measure that. 
Yeah. And and basically that that that's kind of missing the point and you're not understanding your audience. Of course, if the audience is the same, but why do you have multiple different skews for the same audience? Then that would be the key question. It's like why, why did you do that? Now you're kind of competing against yourself. Exactly. Uh but but I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the platform. So um I've been using it for a while and um it's awesome. So it's it's like really easy to use. It's super deep, but as you said, it 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 also gives you clear recommendations for for the product and marketing so basically just just for the uh, for the listeners and um i hope that that a lot of the listeners are actually connecting with you afterwards and, and getting the uh, the demo for for the for the uh, for the platform but basically it's divided into first of all is you see the profile so that's that has the written description of the player so for example in, in one of the games that i was studying i had a very uh, German Gunther type of this person. Uh, it was just person three, but it sounded really German. It was like highly inflexible <laughs> and, uh, and and all about my maxim. But anyways, uh, it goes through the written description of that player. It even shows the nationality. Um, it shows what type of games they play. Uh, what is their sort of a top activity in that game? Uh, it goes deeper into the traits. Uh, there you can see the motivations, the frustrations, the hopes how social these players are, how do they compete in games, which is a really important notion because uh, we've seen, for example, a lot of games, uh, let's say farming games or match three games, implement competitive features because those work overall in mobile, but they have totally destroyed those games because the players were there to relax, to... I don't know what the motivations were, but it wasn't definitely to, to, you know, to beat the other people growing crops and, and pigs. It was just like, no, I'm playing this while I'm Netflixing and I don't yeah. need the stress. Anyway, uh, it talks about the, uh, the, the platform shows experience. So how do they play games? So it shows other games and how they, how to interact with that. What are their emotions when playing your game? So they're always tied to like, you get the data from, from the game. Uh, when they are online, so this is super important for marketing. Uh, what they value in UX, this is again what, what you talked about in, in redesigning for two and, and kind of those elements. And a lot of the stuff in game teams usually is about UX. Is like when do we do it? Is it important? It's not important. Depends on the game team. Some game, some some game teams, some game companies value UX. Some couldn't give rats ass about UX. They just decided that this doesn't move any metric that they measure, so it doesn't matter. It's a box, whatever. And um, uh, the platform shows the triggers that get them to play your game. So super important for retention and re-engagement. And it also shows what is their favorite reward inside the game. And what, all, what makes this really interesting is that you measure not only the share of these personas in your game. So you might see that 12% are Gunthers and, and this is what they do. But, you, but they also, your platform also measures the LTV of these players. So even though it might be a small percentage, they might be actually highly valuable. So that helps to prioritize your roadmap based on that. And then, you know, you can dive as deep as you want. So you had the representation of masculinity in the culture trade. You got the deep dives that provide descriptions to just players uh, like the collaborative features that also allow for friendly competition. You got the aesthetics and the beauty and so forth and so forth. So, so I, was, I, was, I was going deep and deep, but then, and then I, at one point I felt like, oh my God, this, this is like taking a class of, of psychology uh, and cognitive behavior. But then I got to the, uh, the, um, the suggestion pages and this was awesome. So you do two types of suggestions, as you said, based on AI, uh, you do the product suggestions. So you provide or highlight some key features and mechanics that allow for, for example, self-expression, self freedom of choice, and, um, and that helps to optimize for certain groups in that certain personas that are in your game. And then you also have suggestions for the acquisition side, as we talk about the shooter games and so forth. So use the words like, like there's a, there's awesome stuff like the time to target that I mentioned. Uh, you also have examples of copies that you should do and shouldn't do for these type of people. And there are, there are, you know, awesome quotes of what they want and don't. And you also do suggestion based on art style for different personas. And this is another important part because once you start, yeah, once you start running marketing at scale, you do all the type of different copies, you do all the type of different art styles, and those all lead to, to the players coming in your game. And if from that point on, you can deep link and make the tutorials even more smoother for those, that significantly increases your funnel, but it also increases your KPIs because now you're, you are um, getting 
different types of players and you're treating them differently according to the way they like to be treated. So this is my experience so far with the platform. I'll be using it a lot more, but a couple of questions like how did you get all this data and how has the platform evolved during these couple of years? Yeah. And how do you get the data? Like how, how does the data get collected? Yeah, that's an important, important part. Um, and so back to the, you know, the being at the University of Wisconsin doing clinical psychology thing. Um, what we do is we have a proprietary, um, it's a psychometric assessment. And so it's, it's based on clinical psychology. And we started out by sending this out in game. And we still send this out in game because we actually find that it increases retention and it's incredibly positive for players. So early on, we got a question, not from companies that were more experienced with sending these things out. Um, you know, there's one guy we work with, for example, PhD um, psychology, head of UX at uh, one of the bigger California studios and just came out. He's like, we send out surveys all the time. And he's like, I know exactly what you guys are doing here. And it's amazing. And we don't know how to build a test like that. So, you know, if you look at from a, a clinical psychology perspective, like the MMPI is probably the standard clinical test that you would take if you're looking to diagnose. It's been around for, for decades now. Um, no one's disrupted it. It makes a lot of money. It's very good at what it does. Um, so we basically took a science, which is very robust and old, but also hard to do, and made a questionnaire that was so effective at basically procuring psychological data where we can send it out in a game through an interstitial. Uh, we have an encrypted ID that goes past. So something that's really important at the core of 12 traits is two things. One is privacy and GDPR. So we actually end up being a GDPR provider for a lot of companies where, because a lot of gaming companies have tons of PII, basically, even if you hired, so first off, your, your run-of-the-mill psychologist wouldn't be able to build something like this. Um, you need to hire probably a very proficient neuropsychologist who has experience in, in building assessments and building really good assessments. And then they would have to have a gaming background in terms of like, well, there's thousands of traits. Which ones do you measure? So over like eight years, I'd basically been doing this and measuring which traits are actually important to know about that can shift KPIs in a way that sustains LTV over time. So that's the second important part about the product is everything we're doing, we're, we're in it for long-term value. So if you know we're working with a game company that comes around, it's kind of like the Wolf of Wall Street where he's like, sell this man a pen. You know, he's like, does he want to buy a pen? No, well, then why are you selling him a pen? And something for us is if someone's like, we need, you know, we only care about D7 and anything after that, like, cause you'll come, some companies say, well, we cal calculate our LTV differently. Oh, you mean you, you calculate it based on like up to D30, not, you know, to D180 or beyond. Yeah. And so for us, it's like, we're here to help game companies build sustainable games over time, which means actually understanding people and bringing them real value. That's a whole other topic, but back to how it happens. So we send this questionnaire out in the game. We, we pass an encrypted ID uh, along, along the line. So that's our, our bridge. That's what allows us to communicate between the game company and us. And then the, the guys from the game uh, and gals take the questionnaire and typically the population get, that gets sent the questionnaire in the game, will get about 10% of that population to take that on the first day. So a game has 100,000 DAU, 10,000 of those people have been clean responses. So after the, the algorithms have done the data cleaning, you know, kicked out people that weren't valid responses. And so now we basically have a player ID that's attached to uh, a psychometric profile. Um, and we ask some survey questions too. So that's where people get confused. Sometimes they're like, is it a survey? Well, no, it's a psychological test mostly. And that's kind of like taking an online fingerprint in a way. So we never have to know who the person is in real life, but it's a good idea of like, you know, who the person is across a digital environment. So if we saw that same profile show up in a clash of clans and an angry birds, we would know it's either their doppelganger or some, or it's them. But we don't even have to know anything about them in real life. So it protects the person from, unlike a Facebook or a Google that knows all this personal information on you, we never collect any of that kind of stuff. And then the other important thing we do is once that data comes in over on our end, what we know, and I was talking with some of the PlayFab guys about this, and I've seen this throughout my career, is when you do hyper, hyper personalization, like the 
other people in your zip code also purchased this thing. Like it's creepy and people tend to not respond well to it. Um, it's not comfortable, people don't like it. But what people do like, because we're humans, we, we act, we purchase, we behave in groups. So what we do is we group people based on psychological similarity. So the second that information comes in, the algorithms are turned on and what they're doing is they're finding the psychological traits that we know are the most endurable over time. So these are the ones that, you know, there's some traits like, you know, like your level of anxiety, like a lot more people have anxiety right now because COVID. Yeah. Uh, so that can go up and down. But there's other things like what well, we mentioned earlier, like extroversion and introversion. People don't just change that. Like, you know, we don't overnight. I'll, now I'm an introvert. Now I'm an extrovert. Um, so there's certain traits that are really endurable. So we basically are able to build out this profile. And as that happens, basically the, the game company, so they're able to get the IDs from those groups. And then you can do micro segmentation from there. You could say, I want to know like who are the players that are high LTV that are millennials that are high on competition and you could click a button and would show you, Oh, there's three psychological segments that are in your game who are these people, but it's only 2% of your audience. Mm. Um, so from, from a measurement perspective, that's what's happening. And then we have an API where we leave it up to game companies, whether they want to hook up or not, but this is when the magic happens. So once the APIs in, or we allow for like just data dumps too of behavior data. So imagine you have the player IDs, you have, you know, what they're, whatever behavior data that you're tracking at the time. And what we have on our back end is basically we played um, Carl Linnaeus for the digital world mm -hmm. and created massive taxonomies for what happens in different types of genres, different types of games, mechanics, you know, anything you could think of. If we, if we haven't tracked it, we keep adding to it. And then so what we're able to do is structure data from broad different types of games. And then from that, we can predict now when new players come into the game, we can say, oh, it looks like this is a Gunther or fits mm. in with the Gunther. Or let's say you have a huge organic install push and we can say, it looks like there's a new segment here actually mm -hmm. um, that wasn't there before or your audience is changing quite a bit now. And so it works that way. The other way it works is for a lot of companies use us for launching new games now. So with that, it's just all based on our database. So you can, mm -hmm. you know, come in and say, it's, it's going to be a strategy RPG game. And we can say, this is the audience that is representative of all the strategy RPG people mm -hmm. in the world. So now you're not designing in the dark. And I mean, we know that, you know, if you don't have a research budget for your development up front, your development is your research budget. Yeah. And you get to see you know, when you put it out, whether it works or not. And I've seen in my career, a lot of expensive games get killed or, you know, just die slow deaths because, you know, you didn't, you, people stuck to their guns, but the original hypothesis, they totally missed the mark on the actual audience that they were, you know, making things for. And I think one of the things the game industry, because we're in the experience economy now as of 2020, uh, which is an amazing place to be if you're in the game industry. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that people, what that's changing all these lock-in effects that used to be in games where, uh, it's on Nintendo, it's on PlayStation, it's on, you know, all those are going away. Kids are going to be able to play Fortnite on their phone, go to, you know, you can, any platform, you mm -hmm. just play different, the same game across it. So now what game companies a lot are waking up to or already know and coming to us, they're realizing they compete on audience now. How well do they understand the portfolio, the audience that they have? And how well do they continue to grow that audience and make games? It's the same story with all the, you know, the Netflix and Disney Plus. And how do you measure and command that audience? So that's the other that way that um, companies are able to, you know, use our database. And so what we're moving towards, though, is in eventually from a scientific perspective, something we really care about. We'd love to be able to be at a point where we're able to, with scientific certainty, through the behavior in the game, be able to predict these psychological traits at like a medical grade level. Mm. Uh, so at that point, we wouldn't need to do any of the questionnaire stuff anymore. Uh, that part's great. It increases engagement. Players love it because it's transparent. You have to opt in three times before you give us your data. So, you know, it's very black and white in terms of it's the opposite of how Facebook does things, right? It's like, it's very clear on what we do, why we're doing it. And that's, you know, Salesforce came out, they looked at 150 million consumers 
and found that 83% expect experiences to be tailored now for them. And at the same time, it's like 60 some percent, they want it, but they're not sure about giving up their data. And so we're able to allow game companies and gamers to have their cake and eat it too, mm-hmm. where as a gamer, you don't have to give your personal psychological data to any of the game companies. And as a gamer, you don't have to give any of your personally identifiable data to us. Mm-hmm. So you get the personalization that you're expecting. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. It's like, if you want personalization, if you want someone to buy a really good present for you and you're like, I'm 24, that's, <laughs> that's all you get to know. Like, yeah. good luck. You're not going to get the personalization that you're expecting. So that's, you know, for us over time, we're learning more and more how to do this thing. And if we're able to do it, I mean, that's kind of like the first ghetto version of the matrix, I guess, if we're, if we're able to actually achieve that. So it's a scientifically, it's a very profound thing uh, if we get there. Mm. And it's, it's, um, so how many currently, if, if you implement 12 trades and you have a live game, how many, how many, um, how many times do you have to run these questionnaires? Is is it like a, on a, on a steady cadence and how many responses do you need to have per questionnaire? Cause this is basically an answer for us for a soft launch game. Yeah. Yeah. So for soft launch games, so we only need about 70 to hundred mm-hmm. uh, as a baseline to That's be at a, a, a predict. Yeah. It's not very much. Um, and in, in terms of clean answers. So what that means is your soft launch game probably has to have around and people at soft launch are usually a bit more engaged than other people are. So, when, when the game's at about 500, 600 people, we can usually get that sample, no problem. Oh, wow. And that's incentivized or not incentivized. And so that's like, and that's a really vital part of your game. Uh, we just did it for, there's a game that launched recently that's um, been blowing up. And we were with those guys from soft launch and they did it early on. So typically in terms of number of times, uh, what we'll do is if the game company comes to us really early, like there's a couple uh, larger companies at the moment that are with us now. And I don't say names because we don't yeah, disclose names and unless, you know, that's been open and talked about. But there's a couple of bigger companies that they'll come to us very early and say, hey, we're making this new game. It's in this space. We want we want to get a dashboard. And that's just based on the our, our database. So nothing's needed. Push a button. You got it. So there's that. There's the second step, which is the soft launch case. And then once the game goes into soft launch, when we get to that, you know, 70 to 100, we like to get about 470 to 500. Because at that point, from a statistical perspective, you just have a much better representation of a larger population. You know, you can say you're 95% certain that this would represent 2 million players in this game. You know, at, at those lower rates, how we increase validity is what we're able to do is say, oh, it looks like these specific traits are showing up in this game right now. And then we can say this game is in this genre, it's in this category, and it can go back to our database, which has a lot of people. Uh, And then it can start to basically build out what that audience is. And that's where we can pick up a lot of extra validity and predictive validity of who that audience is. Um, So what's what's cool though is once the game hits like 2,000 to 5,000 questionnaires, that's the point at which, and this will get lower and lower over time, but that's the point at which we can turn on the API or you can give us behavior data and we can learn in real time. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, those are the different thresholds. Like, you know, at around 70, we can work with, we like to be at around four to 500. That's like, that's nice to get to. Uh, And then yeah, 2000 to 5,000 is like for being able to learn in real time and basically having a living, breathing pulse on your, on your game and on your audience. Mm. Uh, and then once that happens, you don't need to reassess again unless your game blows up and becomes, you know, Fortnite level where yeah. if there's, it has to, what has to happen is a huge influx of data that our engine can't predict has mm-hmm. to come in. And that's so every, it's like any AI system there that happened in the past. Every time it does it, it gets better at predicting who's coming in. So we're learning over time. That's that's awesome, um, and and especially in, in the in the beginning, because because when you start development, um, we usually look at the um, you know the category, the the genres, the subgenres, kind of coming up with an ideas of of how what we're gonna take what we'll, from from other games, what are we gonna improve, and then we do a lot of marketability work where we just try to optimize for a lower CPI. 
mm-hmm. or or you know a new style but we we failed to kind of look at the other side of the coin which is who are we making this game for and as you said a lot of the time it's very demographic it's like well 65 percent male you know 35 percent female 50 percent us these are the top 10 countries and we essentially take that from like sensor tower or you know other data platforms just just look at the other uh, countries of origin that kind of stuff so so this this is this is highly helpful when not highly helpful it is essential when when you're really understanding who are the personas that's that's how i felt and it was kind of like uh very revealing for me i i'd never used it that much before but um i've had um great experience using it so i wanted to kind of ask you about you know some of the stuff that, that you're talking about is, is really optimizing for long-term retention and long-term customer value uh, we have some listeners who are working in hyper casual space and and you know sometimes the way i the way i see hyper casual is a business model it's not a game genre per, per se it's it's just straight up business come on like let's let's be honest uh but but and it's you know it, it, it's great business, but it, it requires different things. So let's talk about, let's talk about, you know, big games and, and games that have truly like housing, I would call forever franchises or, or games that have sustainable long-term success. And, and, and um, what I believe you, you, this platform is to make those type of games to, to keep them improving. So, you know, can you talk more about, you know, the optimizing for long-term retention and, and sort of a long-term customer value? Yeah, and maybe I'll just touch real quick on because we do work with um, some big hyper casual companies, mm-hmm. and on that end, I mean marketing is still a big deal, and and gunshot approach, and you know one of the things like, okay, you have dynamic ads, right? Like how many ads does a person get to see a day before yeah. they get burnt out? Like so, you can A/B you know, for, test that pretty yeah. quickly because with their volumes and their their expectations of retention, it doesn't matter. They burn out people just to see how how quickly they burn out. <laughs> Yeah, but I think what's still what still is interesting within hyper casual, there's this idea that like hyper casual games are for everyone, which is totally not true. There's a certain group of people that do play them. And then with marketing, when you're spending that much money at, you know, you're throwing things up and just throwing darts at the wall, there's mm-hmm. totally a space for they need to understand their customers just as much. It's just a different approach. Yeah. Um, and I and I think a lot of those companies are starting to think a little bit more, the ones that have been successful about the long term games because we know that that's where you want to be from a business model perspective. You want some, you don't want to turn products over, you know, it's, it's exhausting. Yes. You know, you want, you want to be able to sit on something and say that this is a real business and now let's build out from it. So it's to speak to that. And that, that talks more to our core ethos as a company. Uh, one of the reasons I'm doing this and why I'm not seeing, seeing patients right now doing psychotherapy is, I mean, you're just, your time is not scalable as a psychotherapist. And you want to help people. And when we we don't realize as developers that you know, there's 2.8 billion people playing games every single day, and games are experience, and they heavily influence the way people think, feel, dream, ideate, all these different things. And if you're doing that, and you're telling me that you don't actually, you only know the demographic of your person, like we got to level this up here as an industry. You know, if I'm a master tailor and my craft is making suits for people. And I go in, I'm going to ask my client everything I can about them to learn Mm -hmm. about them, to be able to create an incredible suit for them. If they just tell me, oh, it's a 52 year old male. And then you tell me I could be the best tailor in the world. My suit is still not going to be the best suit that that guy ever bought. And, you know, so from enabling game companies, moving forward into the experience economy that, that we're moving into right now and that we are at, what's important and really important is the value of the customer. And we've had some, some larger games come to us and say, Hey, uh, Joe, like how, how much value do our players get from our game? Like, mm-hmm. like how much value do they get from our community? And we actually ran, we're going to release this in about, uh, in a week. Um, it's, it's basically the healthiest games. We're not putting any of the, we're not throwing anyone under the bus. So none, none of the games that are like not as healthy, but games are, that are healthier for sleep, for depression, for anxiety, um, we're just releasing it for all these people that are staying at home or, you know, hopefully we can get out now and, and COVID can start to go away. We'll see where that goes, but we wanted to release a resource so people can at least see like, 
okay, people who are getting better sleep, what kind of games are they playing? Uh, people who are less depressed, what games are they playing? And the reality and the truth is what we see in our data because we do measure depression data, anxiety data. And the reason why we do that is because we care about what is actually going out there because there's a simple truth that we know that not everybody else, maybe it's, it doesn't seem like common sense, but LTV over a lifetime, like we're talking actual lifetime value. Mm -hmm. It's totally based on the value you give somebody as a customer. So like an example I always tell people is like, I've skied since I could walk. Yeah. That industry will get way more money from me than any other industry, but it also gives me more value. Friendships, social value, psychological value, excitement, experience, all these things that I just can't get other places. And it's not an addiction, right? Like people burn out and blow out of addictions. So the addiction industry, like you can get a lot of short-term cash, but if you're, if you're a serious company that is serious about making, you know, a business, not a, you might as well be making an ad agency if you're trying to just create, you know, quick games that, that make money. Like it's basically project-based, right? You're running projects. And so if you want to make a billion dollar company, you want to create something that lasts and has longevity. And, and so to do that, it comes down to what are you giving your customers? And there's this shared value aspect. So if they're giving you a lot of value and you're not giving them value, this is how relationships work. Yeah. You know, it's mutualism, right? If, if it, there's a parasitic relationship where let's say you happen to have an environment and there's just not another game that competes with you. The set, if you're, if you have a shitty place or shitty environment and a lot of good games in certain ways are amazing, but in other ways they're not. Um, and there's toxic issues then, you know, toxic's a broad term, but how we focus on the long-term stuff is through our, so just empirically speaking, through the actions that we have in the game, when we see that those are implemented and we can see that these players, for example, like maybe on D30, they're spending less than this cluster, mm -hmm. but on D90, they're spending more. On D250, they're spending more. And so actually looking at when you're propping up your business and same with uh, social value. So you're measuring your, this guy doesn't spend any money, but yeah, we can see the different connections that came in because of that ID and those connections all spend X amount over 200 days. Mm. So you're also predicting the value of a person, not just based on, Oh, what's their ARP DAO or what's the, you know, like what's the, you know, you know, how much are they spending? What are their in-app purchases? You know, so for, for us, what it's about is how do you actually bring value to that customer in a sustainable way over time? Like if we see, for example, if KPIs are hooked up and we see one of our actions and it gets implemented and we actually see that over time, like player depression starts to go up, like we'll cut that from our system. Like that won't go in there anymore because we know that that will affect long-term LTV. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Facebook's an example of it's a good thing they bought Instagram because depression does raise over time if you use Facebook a lot, not for everybody. And that's the other thing that people don't realize games are experienced. So for some people, Facebook can be like the healthiest thing to go mm -hmm. on every day. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, maybe someone's allergic to peanuts and for the other one, it's a superfood and they can have protein. It's a great source. So we know, for example, that certain games that help some people to sleep don't help other people to sleep. So specifically dialing and bringing that back to, LTV for how do I build kind of a, a lifetime game? What we're mm -hmm. here for is allowing, you know, other game companies to be able to build that foundation from day one that they can, it's not going to be a house of cards. It's going to be a game that's built to last and a system that's built to last. And I can tell you from some of the other games that have been really successful in our large, they're having to backtrack uh, now and try to figure a lot of this stuff out. And it's, it's a lot harder to do if you go back and do it. And if from day one, if you do it, it's, it's going to impact your retention in a positive way. It's going to impact your revenue in a positive way. It's just, you know, it might not be D1 or D7. It might be D180 when, you know, as per the, the article you guys had, like <laughs> it's D180 when, when you start to see the, the revenue that's out. And that's, you know, a, a person spending 10 bucks a week over five years mm -hmm. is a lot better than someone that spends a thousand dollars in a day. Exactly. Like that's, that's a much better customer. So. Yeah. And, and I kind of, I wanted to end on, on, on that note, on the note of long-term retention and long-term customer value, because, because that's, that's the key for sustainable business, whatever you're doing, but especially with experience economy. And, um, 
I think we can talk for days about, about the platform, but probably the best way for people is to actually test it out. So what's, can you talk about like, what's, what's sort of like, what's the next thing for 12 trades? Because, you know, since you started to the point where you are now, the platform has changed significantly and you've been making super high, super fast progress with, uh, I believe your team is Berlin, right? Yeah, Berlin, and now we have a little office in Los Angeles too. Nice, so. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> good locations. So uh, nothing in Minnesota. Uh, but anyway, so <laughs> if we go into uh, healthcare, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but like, kind of talk about like what's next for for twelve tries because at the moment already the platform is very robust and there's there's so much depth uh, as as well as so many clear insights to access that. You know, everybody should be doing that. And um, yeah, talk about like what's what's next for you guys and how to get in touch with you. Uh, yeah. with um, so there's there's some really badass near term stuff that we got going on. Um, that's like getting released as we speak, basically. Uh, ones like you can upload different ad images and it predicts what traits are connected with those. Uh, so being able to just automate. We already have uh, companies that have been testing it out and it's been it's been kicking a lot of ass in terms of ROAS uh, compared to what they're doing so like that's that's cool it's giving power back to creatives uh, to be able to basically have data around what create creatives they should mm -hmm. produce so that's that's pretty sweet uh, we have a uh, basically we're calling it navigator and what it is is you can look at genres subgenres you can basically go in and see who the different groups of people are that are in these so it's a much powerful, much more powerful tool than the mechanic paradigm of looking at what mechanics are within different places and trying to cross those over with each other. Cause then you can effectively say, Oh, it looks like this mm -hmm. genre, for example, is growing at 20% year over year. Who are the people playing this genre? And then you can go in and you can see them and then you can create, you can, as, as you said, um, yeah find the blue oceans within red oceans. So basically so, you have audience taxonomy coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. exactly. So you can see how it's think of it as like a, you know, immigration or migration. If you're mm -hmm. thinking of animals, how different herds are moving into different ecosystems. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so that's, that's, those are two things that are happening. Like as, as we speak in the next month or so uh, that are getting released now. And what's happening is there's, a unified platform that's coming out out of this. And for us, what this is really about is helping power the whole experience management space uh, within gaming. So allowing companies to just manage player experience holistically through understanding them. So that's, that's the big one there. There's something that we're uh, hoping to announce uh, you know, it was going to be at GDC, but we'll see whenever that will, we don't know when that's going to happen. So there's, there's some cool, uh, I'm, I'm going to keep that one in the back pocket. Yeah, of course. I'll let, I'll let everyone wait till, <laughs> wait till that happens. But I think from a, yeah, from a product development, you know, you've seen us from a year ago till now mm -hmm. and, you know, we move very quickly and very customer centric. Like we are, we try to practice what we preach. Yeah. We don't try, we do. So when we work with companies like, Hey, like we really need this. We're like, cool. That's in our pipeline. We'll even prioritize it. So a lot of what's rolling out right now are the like really quick, like smack you in the face stuff. That's really going to help. Um, there's some collaborations we have like with unity, for example, um, growing into the real time stuff. Can I, can I turn on dynamic difficulty? For example, can I turn on dynamic ads for mm. this group? if I know how resilient they are, how much grit they have, and I have their behavior information too, uh, you know, cause we know when we have a lot more close wins or close losses, people that's more engaging, people tend to spend more, um, but doing it in a sustainable way, not in a burn people out kind of way. Yeah. So, so I think for, for us, uh, a lot of that's the next horizon after these more recent things uh, is a lot more of the, it's kind of like, um, a nicer version of like a hunger games dashboard where it'll empower developers to be able to, you know, it's, it's like a, it's like a live ops kind of controls panel, I guess. Um, but we're not, we're not there yet. That's all in the works. Um, yeah. so that's exciting. And then from, a, a you know, how to interact with us, uh, you can reach out to us, 12 traits.com. You can email me personally, Joe at 12 traits. Pretty, pretty <laughs> Don't tell your phone number. <laughs> yeah. 
I haven't gave that one away yet. But like email, like we're pretty low. Um, you know, it's easy to get tough. So yeah, yeah. and if it gets crazy, I can always change my email. But uh <laughs> yeah, so you know, feel free to reach out to us. Um and we're we're you know, we're happy to set up demos and you know, get you in the platform. And you know, for us, everybody we work with, I think what's important for our end, because um we we tend to go the other way around too, and we want to interview our customers and we just want to make sure that uh, if, if you want to buy a pen, uh, we'll sell you a pen, but if you don't care about understanding your customers, you know, we're not a good people. We're not a good group to talk to. Yeah. So we're not here to convince you that it's a good idea. Uh, because most of the best people in the business already know that already. And that's just a waste of time for us. But if you, if you <laughs> want to understand your audience or other audiences, cause you're making new stuff, yeah. uh, we're definitely happy to, to, you know, help you then let's put it this way in order to build a sustainable business you have to understand your audience i i, I do believe so i think that <laughs> might might be helpful like. <laughs> so so um thank you so much joe for for jumping in uh, uh we had a we had a long chat and i kind of wanted to get you on, on on podcast to tell others about the cool stuff you're doing as well as um you know, share the love because that's what Deconstructor is about. I mean, we like, I enjoy using the platform. I enjoy seeing how it evolves. So I think it's really important that, that others know about it as well because, you know, it's, it's truly helpful. Well, thanks. I mean, yeah, really appreciate it. Uh, and I mean, I personally look forward to just, yeah, continue to work with you too. So <laughs> it'll be awesome. I'm, and I'm, yeah, I'm excited for everything you're doing. So <laughs> thank you. And and thank you for, for the listeners. So I hope you guys have a, have a good, healthy day uh, or night or wherever you're listening to this. So bye-bye. All right, bye.